preview season of existence, figuring it out. Uh, but we're so happy you're here. You came at a really exciting time. Um, because we are so new and the cement is so um, wet, we get to shape this into what we feel God calling us to be. And so there's a lot of uh, opportunity for people to bring their voice. And, and we think a church exists um, to empower each one of us to become who God created us to be. And so we're just really excited that you're here. Thank you for coming. We know time is, is a cherished possession for New Yorkers. And so you could be a lot of places. So thanks for being here. We're a group of people compelled by the story of Jesus, really compelled by the story of Jesus. And the first thing I want to say is you might not be, and that is totally fine. You are so welcome here. We are a group of people who find this story uh, called the Gospels, the shorthand, so utterly compelling that we're dedicating our lives to learning about it, to being transformed by it, to being shaped by it. But we find this story so compelling, and we're going to talk about truth in a bit. Truth that has to be defended through violent means is not true. Truth at its purest requires no defense. Ultimately, it will be proven as true. And so we find the gospel so compelling, we are totally fine with wherever anyone is in their spiritual journey. So our only request is that you be exactly who you are. Be exactly where you are. Come with your questions, with your doubts, um, with your fears, and we'll come with ours. So what I thought we would do today is um, read two passages of scripture. Uh, the first one comes from Peter's first letter to the church in Rome. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 through 16. And before we read that, I'd like to pray. Jesus, we confess that we don't know you as we want. We confess that sometimes you are confounding and mysterious. We confess that even the parts that we do know of your story, Lord, we don't know what that means for our lives. We confess we're selfish and we do not care about your people as much as you do. But we're open, Father. We want to be transformed into your likeness. We want to serve this world the way you did. Lord, after weeks like the one we just had, we recognize that so many people are coming in with different emotions. I pray, Father, that you give the right words that speak hope, um, hope in you, that it would be challenging, but ultimately lead to hope. And only you can do that. So bless this time. Jesus, it's in your crucified and resurrected name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to start with 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 through 16. This is how it reads. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that though they may malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. For the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution, 
whether of the emperor as supreme or of governors as sent by him to punish those who do wrong, to praise those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing right, you should silence the ignorance of the foolish. As servants of God, live as free people. Yet do not use your freedom as a pretext for evil. Honor everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Now we're gonna jump over to Romans, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Chapter 13, verses one through seven. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good and you will receive its approval for it is God's servant for your good. But if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid, for the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience. For the same reason you also pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, busy with this very thing. Pay to all what is due them, taxes to to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. Now, on weeks like ours, weeks like the one we just had, texts like these produce in us either a sense of excitement or despair, right? Some of y'all looked a little too gleeful reading these texts and others looked a little too somber. And it's no fun, I'm just being honest, it's no fun to turn to texts like these after the week we just had. To turn to these texts with the question, what does the gospel have to say to us today? What does the gospel have to say to Caesar, to power, to politics, to the church living in Caesar's kingdom? But it's revealing. For no matter what you felt when I read these texts, whether you felt um, excitement or despair, it's revealing of something deeper going on. And it's indicative, it's that indication that there's something deeper going on that we're gonna turn our attention to today. Now, first thing I need to to say, I need to make a qualification. I'm not speaking to Americans today. I'm speaking to the church in America. Now that's important and you'll understand why in a second. So if you're not a Christian, you're kind of off the hook. You get to listen in and sort of figure out what the gospel would say to you if you were a Christian, but if you're not, you're good. But I'm not speaking to Americans today. I'm speaking to the church living in the Caesar's kingdom we call America. And just so you know, because I'm gonna use that phrase a lot, Caesar. Caesar's a shorthand. Caesar's shorthand for the institutions of power, the powers that be. And it can be grand, it could be um, institutions of power such as uh, the president, of the United States, or it could be smaller, it could be uh, the leader of the PTA. But whoever holds power could be the shorthand of Caesar, okay? Just so we're good with that going forward. And I wanna make that distinction that I'm speaking to the church in America because what I think we've seen this election season is another iteration of a church confused in our identity. There's a narrative and it's been around for a long time, and I'm gonna say it with fear and trembling, all right? Stay with me, please stay with me. 
The narrative is this. America is a Christian nation. That's the narrative. That God has chosen America for special and salvific purposes. And the key word is salvific. That God has made America a light to the nations. That somehow the nations can find salvation through her. What we've seen over the last 50 years um, is that this salvation hasn't necessarily been for all Americans. And if it's not a salvation for all, the question becomes, is it a gospel salvation? And the answer is no. Now, what I don't want to do today is debate that narrative's validity. I don't want to debate whether the founders had it in mind when they wrote the documents and the constitutions and the laws of this land, they intended her to be a Christian nation. I don't want to debate that. That's a sermon for another day or probably just a conversation. I'll never preach on that. (laughs) What I do want to say is that whether that narrative is true or not, it has influenced the church in this land. It has influenced the church and it does it in subtle ways. Subtle ways. Case in point. The gospel says love your neighbor. But over time, um, the church in America, love of neighbor equates to doing duty to your fellow citizen. Do your duty to your fellow citizen. Now, at first that sounds quite right, right? But we change two different terms there. Is love the same thing as duty? And what happens um, when neighbor becomes exchanged with citizen? Legal citizen? Illegal citizen? Where the gospel was a much broader, it's become tightened up um, in its scope. Or, or at, its, at, its, at its core, to, to let this narrative that America is a Christian nation influence the church, um, to be a good Christian means to be a good American. And, and to be a good American would mean to be a good Christian. But what happens when you have questions of like war, right? What happens um, when America tells us that this war is right and just and needed? Um, but we have the, the, the premier example in the gospel of a cross, which if the cross means anything, friends, it certainly means that God refuses to save his world through violence. It means God would rather absorb violence than levy it out, if it means anything. So what do we do? What I think we've seen uh, in our country over the past 100, 150 years, more, is the evolution of Christianity to Christendom. Christianity has become Christendom. And Christendom, a simple definition, is to describe a place or time when Christians hold geopolitical power over and against other groups. Where Christians hold the most power over and against other groups. Christians are the majority and therefore get to um, set the terms for what it is to live. And I think the gospel has something to say to this. You don't know this, except now you do, because I'm telling you. Every Sunday when we come in, um, there's an American flag that sits right there. 
and we remove it and we take it up the stage and we put it behind the curtain. And we do not do that from any sign of disrespect toward this amazing country. We don't do that as a sign of disrespect. We are so grateful to the fact that we get to meet and worship in a public school. That's amazing. We are so grateful that we have the freedoms to be able to speak, that we're not afraid of persecution. But we remove the flag because we don't want to confuse the symbols. Because when we gather here on Sunday morning and we say Jesus is Lord, we know that's utterly independent of what country we say that in. Utterly independent. See, after election seasons like this, everyone wants God to speak against that group. Did y'all see Stephen Colbert's like wrap up? Oh my goodness. And when he has that line where he looks at the camera, he's like, and you know you're right, don't you? You know you're right. Everyone wants God to speak against that group because they're wrong and we're right. And God goes, cool, I will. Let's start with you. That's the gospel. We want to say, oh, Lord, show them how they're wrong. Show them, amend them. God goes, absolutely. Let's start with you. You got that plank in your eye and there's a speck of sawdust over there. Or like what you're seeing with our particular election. The media wants to condemn Trumpism. The media is calling on the powers that be to condemn Trumpism. And the powers that be go, absolutely. Let's start with the media, right? It's sort of that idea of we want God to speak against Caesar. We want God to speak against politics and power. And God says, absolutely. Let's start with the church. Let me tell you what is expected of the church. And I think it starts with this. The church in America must reclaim our fundamental identity as aliens and exiles. The two Greek words used there in 1 Peter, he goes, I urge you as aliens and exiles, per oikos, per epidemus. Literally what it means is one who lives in an area without the right to citizenship. To live as an alien or an exile is to live in an area without the right to citizenship. To be socially and politically without a voice, which is fundamentally an unstable life. Now, Peter is talking to Christians in Rome, some of whom are Jews. So Jews would have already been, um, by the Roman eyes, aliens and exiles. They are not Roman citizens, but some of whom would have been Roman citizens. And Peter is saying, when you are baptized into Christ, when you are put under the waters and raised up, you no longer pledge allegiance to any Caesar in this kingdom. Your allegiance is to another kingdom. Therefore, from here on out, no matter where you are, your ultimate allegiance is to the kingdom of Jesus. Now, I have to confess, I hear that and I don't exactly know what Peter means because that's something I've never experienced before because growing up, um, predominantly white mainline churches have held the power. We've called the shots. And so I don't know what it means to walk around as a Christian and 
to feel this instability, this sense of um, an uncomfortable life, to feel like I don't have political or social power. But luckily, God always leaves us a witness for the church, always. And there is a particular arm of the American church um, that has known pretty much from its existence what it is to live as an alien exile. And that's the black church. From the days of slavery, when it was outlawed, they could not gather by themselves to worship God for fear of an uprising or a revolt. Or probably uh, one of the best quotes is, is comes from a, a, a brilliant man, African-American man named W.E.B. Du Bois. And he was describing what it is to be, to be black and an American during the 1800s. And he says, it's like being born a stranger in your own home. That's paraphrase. He goes, to be black and an American is being a stranger in your own home. At first, your mom's looking at you and she's smiling and she's rejoicing. And then you sort of grow up a little bit and you catch your siblings giving sidelong, snarling glances at you. And as you grow more and more, it dawns on you that you're not a part of this family. They're tolerating you, but you're not really one of them. That's sort of the instability that's going on in this passage. That's the instability, which is why Christendom has come so far from the gospel. Because so long as Christian purpose is tied up with concerns of the state, we make this our home and we betray our fundamental identity as aliens and exiles. Now to have a home gives us ownership. It gives us power over it. And when it is threatened, we fight to retain it, right? That's just, that's logic, that makes sense. If you come after my home, I'm gonna fight to retain it. Uh, uh, one of my favorite theologians, Stanley Hauerwas, he goes, Christendom says it is for peace because the gospel would make us say it is for peace. But it really means it's for order and security. Threaten its order, threaten its security, threaten its cultural power. Peel it back and you'll see that there was never any peaceableness there. So long as the church thinks America is our home, we must fight to preserve her. But we know discipleship, to be a disciple of Jesus is just extended training and being dispossessed. That's all it is. It's to learn that everything we have is a gift. When Paul says in Philippians 4, I can do all th things through Christ who strengthens me, he's saying it in relation to learning what it is to be dispossessed. He goes, when I had little, when I had nothing, I was content. When I had much, I was content. I can do all things through Christ. To be formed into the image of Christ is to learn to be dispossessed of everything you think is yours even your very life. It's all gift. It's all gift. And it's learning to be filled with Christ, with the new kingdom. So in, in essence, to be a disciple is to learn to be dispossessed more and more, more and more. But it's been hard in Christendom because so long as Christendom holds cultural power, it's tied up with protecting the means of the state. So we can't let it go. And this is all because we've forgotten our identity as exiles.
and aliens. And friends, maybe I should just say right now, this is a man who is trying to figure this out too, that doesn't necessarily appreciate the gravity of what this means. I'm stumbling through it. That's the beauty of the church, is we get to stumble through this together. But hopefully we're stumbling toward the right truth. Howard Wass goes, the loss of Christendom gives us a joyous opportunity to reclaim the freedom to proclaim the gospel in a way in which we cannot when the main social task of the church is to serve as one among many helpful props for the state. Now, the question, sort of when we talk about this, of reclaiming our identity as exiles, what does that mean we sort of abandon America? Does that mean we sort of say, all right, you're on your own. We form our own sort of um, secret societies that have no interest in America? Absolutely not. And we're gonna talk about that in a second. But it does mean, in order to understand what the gospel says to us about how to live in Caesar's kingdom, we have to remember that we are not subjects of this kingdom. And therefore, to, to release that power is to be filled with a new power, a power that says there's another kingdom and you too are invited to share in the feast. So when we reclaim our identity as aliens and exiles, still waiting for our final home, we can hear what the gospel says with fresh ears, what the gospel says about Caesar, about politics, about power to us. And this is what the first thing the gospel says, We accept the authority of Caesar. We accept the authority of Caesar. Romans 13, one, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. When we say Jesus is Lord, we mean that Jesus is Lord of history. Now, this begs the question, does God ordain Caesar's? No, I think God allows the world to be the world, but God is still sovereign over the world's decisions. The world still makes our decisions, but God is still sovereign and uses them. And that's the mystery of redemption that we're gonna talk about next week. God doesn't abandon our choices. He uses them and turns them into good. And we've seen for anyone uh, who's read the stories of Israel, we see that there's no one God won't use. Isaiah 8, we know that the Assyrian nation is coming against Israel, the northern kingdom, and they're about to wipe them out. And Assyria is the most godless, the most impious, the most barbaric and vulgar people. And then Isaiah drops a bomb on Israel. He goes, and guess what? The king of Assyria is the arm of the Lord. God is somehow using Assyria against his own people, and they are stunned. They're like, how could you do that? There's no one God won't use. Two chapters later in Isaiah 10, we're told that God will ultimately punish Assyria for their arrogance. So he uses history. He allows us to make our decision and he goes along with it and he's still sovereign over it. There's no one God won't use. And it's important to realize we are not subjects of Caesar. We subject ourselves to Caesar. We are not subjects of Caesar, we subject ourselves to Caesar because our Lord 
has told us to subject ourselves to Caesar. Now we're gonna talk about what that means. Because we say we accept the authority of Caesar, but what does it mean to accept? Does that mean to go along with everything Caesar says? Absolutely not. What you see to accept the authority of Caesar is to refuse the tools of Caesar. What are the tools of Caesar? Violence, oppression, hatred, coercion, fear. Fear is one of the biggest tools of Caesar. Caesar accomplishes a lot through fear. We reject those tools. Our tools, the tools of the church, are forgiveness, prayer, the table where all are invited, the cross, which is why Paul says, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. What you see Jesus do, which is so incredible at the cross, Jesus does not violently overthrow the old order. He creates a people capable of living within the old order in accordance with the new. We are capable of living within Caesar's order because we refuse the tools of Caesar. We do not revolt through violence. We protest, but we do not revolt through violence. We do not spread hatred. We do not spread fear. So we're capable of living within any Caesar's kingdom because we subject ourselves to Caesar, but we do not pick up his tools, which is why we're such a threat because we are something that Caesar doesn't know how to control. The opposite of love is control. The opposite of true love is control. Caesar loves to control. Caesar loves to understand and institute and make sure I, everything's ready to go. Like he, he or she understands. The powers that be understand. They have their, their finger on it. The gospel is liberation. The gospel is freedom. To know how deeply your father loves you, that you are utterly free to love him back, to love each other fully. Jesus was crucified not because he was a spiritual guru, friends. He was crucified because he was a threat to Rome and to the Jewish people, which is interesting because what was he preaching? He was preaching healing, forgiveness, love, but that's something you can't control. Jesus did not overthrow the old order. He created a people capable of living within it, but as subjects of the new order. So we live within Caesar's kingdom as people of the new kingdom. We subject ourselves to Caesar, but we are not Caesar's subjects. What does that mean? What does it mean to live within Caesar's kingdom as people of the new kingdom? I'm gonna go to Jeremiah 29, verse four through seven. Jeremiah is an Old Testament prophet who's talking um, to the people of Judah as they're going into exile into Babylon. This is about a hundred or so years after Assyria's invasion. This is what it says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. 
for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So powerful. The word for welfare is the Hebrew word shalom. You've probably heard that word before. It means total wholeness. Mental wholeness, physical wholeness, spiritual wholeness, um, institutional, systemic, social wholeness, total wholeness. And God says, seek the wholeness of Caesar's empire. That's the tool of the new kingdom. You don't grow afraid, you don't rebel, you don't revolt, you seek the wholeness of Caesar. And you do it through ordinary tasks. Build houses, plant gardens, get married, have children, live your lives. These are tasks utterly dripping with hope and hope is political defiance. We do not hope in our children. Children are the sign of our hope that Jesus is the Lord of history. We do not hope in our houses. Houses are the sign of our hope that Jesus is ultimately declared king. So we seek the peace of the city by manifesting our hope through being a vision of an alternative kingdom worth living in and dying for. I'm gonna say that again. We seek the shalom of our city by manifesting our hope through being a vision of an alternative kingdom worth living in and dying for. So in Romans, right before, right before Paul um, writes what we already talked about, the let everyone be subject to governing authorities, right before that, he talks to the church and he goes, live like this. This is how you are to live. And he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We subject ourselves to Caesar because God told us to. And we pray, we seek the shalom of Caesar. We refuse the tools of Caesar. Instead, we witness to the other kingdom, the kingdom that Caesar cannot snuff out. When Caesar persecutes, we bless. We rejoice with those, whoever they are, that are rejoicing and we weep with those who are weeping. Caesar, if Caesar favors some and disavows other, we associate with the lowly. And we form our community as places where all classes of people are valued and protected and possess voice. When Caesar uses violence and coercion to accomplish his ends, we present the cross as the sign of God's mode of getting things done. When Caesar seeks revenge, we do no wrong to anyone. When Caesar demands that we bow to his idols, and they're a bunch, money, greed, fear of the other, 
war and violence, racism, sexism, on and on. When Caesar demands we bow to his idols, we politely say we can't do that. Not trying to be disobedient, but we just can't do it. We are subjects of another kingdom. And when Caesar threatens us with death, because death is Caesar's most powerful weapon, that's all Caesar has to threaten us with. We say we are not afraid of death. We've already died with Christ in baptism, and our Lord is alive. You killed him, but it didn't work. So we have no fear. We are truth tellers. We are truth tellers. And the truth is this, friends. Jesus is Lord, and all are invited to his table, even Caesar. Jesus is Lord, and all are invited to his table, even Caesar, which means we pray for Caesar. And if the truth ends in our death, we accept it. The Greek word for witness is martyros, which is where we get the English martyr. Now it's interesting because at the time when it was used in the New Testament, martyros didn't have the connotation of one who dies for witnessing to the truth. It developed that connotation because more and more Christians who were called to be martyrs, called to be witnesses to this truth, this new kingdom of grace and love and freedom, if you're willing to just relinquish your idols, if you're willing to just enter into the feast, they ended up being killed for this witness. That's how it developed its connotation. So we, we speak truth and we don't speak truth from, from anger anger that seeks to overthrow. We don't speak truth from hatred. We speak truth from love, which is dreadfully difficult. And if someone's figured out how to do that, teach me, please. We're learning that, but that's, that's the gospel. The gospel is to look out at someone and to desire that even they would know the love of Christ. The gospel is to wash the feet of Caesar and say, his grace is for you too. It's for you, if you'll have it. And it's a, a sobering quote that I found, and you may have heard it. it comes from a man named Martin Niemöller, who was uh, one of the first German pastors um, in 1933 to, to recognize the threat of Hitler. And he talks about what it is to speak truth. I wanna read this quote and then I wanna explain it. He says, this, this is someone who obviously did not speak out. First they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. And then they came for the trade unionists and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. And then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. Now, we do not speak out because we necessarily agree with any of these groups. Hopefully, the, the, the dispossessed and the marginalized, if they were being murdered, we would speak for them. Or if um, the worst hate group, if they were being murdered, we would still speak out on their behalf. We do not speak out because we necessarily agree with these groups. We do not speak out because we hate Hitler. We speak out because in the kingdom, murder is tragic. Doesn't matter who it is. And injustice toward any person is injustice toward every person. So to hear these texts today, friends, with either extreme jubilation or despair is proof that the gospel still has a lot of work to do in us and me. Let Caesar be Caesar. We are not Caesar's subjects. 
We subject, subject ourselves to Caesar because our Lord has told us to do so. We seek the shalom of Caesar's kingdom because we know that the shalom of Caesar's kingdom will only come when Caesar realizes that there is no Lord but Christ and there is no hope outside of the salvation of the cross. And we live as citizens of the new kingdom while in the old, seeking the best of all. We are truth tellers. And finally, worship becomes our form of protest. Worship becomes our form of protest. The church is the foretaste of the kingdom. We are not the kingdom. Which means worship is our primary activity of hope. In worship, we sing of a home we have yet to see. In worship, we cry out, come Lord Jesus, which is a political act of defiance. In worship, we remind ourselves of the seasons and the times in which we are living. We remind ourselves that Jesus is sovereign in history. In worship, we present a unified vision of what is to come. And we present hope for each other, our brothers and sisters, that it will come though it delays. In worship, we invite all to drop their weapons and their idols and join into this new kingdom of peace and grace and feasting. In worship, we find joy in the midst of sorrow and longing. Or as Stephen Colbert says, you cannot laugh and be afraid at the same time. The devil cannot stand mockery. Worship is something Caesar can never co-opt and never destroy. We are aliens and exiles in America. The church, if you're a Christian, we are aliens and exiles in America. We live fully into what it means to be an American. We do. But when that contradicts with the kingdom of Christ, we are subjects of Jesus. And that place in our hearts that either rejoices or aches after elections that place in our hearts where, where we just so desperately desire the kingdom to be right now, we manifest here in the church today. That's where we get to control. In this space, the kingdom of Jesus is for all, even Caesar. And so I wanna end with a, a letter I found online this past week. Um, I don't know, it's a letter that a father wrote to his children on the eve of the, or um, election night. And uh, I don't know if the father is a Christian or not, but with a couple tweaks here and there, you could almost hear our father talking to his church. So I'm gonna read this to us. He writes, dear little ones, you are already asleep in your beds. It's late and I'm going to bed. It's been a long election day. When this day began, I woke up and I walked to the corner coffee shop in the dim pre-dawn light, down streets already aglow with Christmas lights. Ordinarily, I would have been cynical about the early start to the holiday season. I don't think God would have been cynical. <laughs> this morning, I was grateful for the reminder that there is light in the world and soon we will be celebrating it. I arrived at the coffee shop. It was more crowded than normal Almost certainly, these were voters who had awoken earlier than usual. But for a moment, 
just one blessed moment. I didn't see voters. I didn't see politics. I saw people, just human beings, trying to wake up to yet another day, trying in some more profound way to wake up to this one life. They weren't at that moment casting votes. They were just breathing, eating, drinking. Little ones, we have far more in common than in conflict. And we would know this if instead of seeing fear and anger and ideology, we could see beneath the surface our beating hearts, the blood pulsing through our veins, lungs filling and emptying, joints aging and aching. This morning, for one peaceful moment, I saw all these people this way. And in that moment, the lights on the trees outside weren't the only lights I could see in the world. It's late and I'm going to bed. And it's not clear how this whole American season is going to end. I don't know who will be the leader of our land. I don't know how this leader will influence the laws of our land. These are things we cannot control. But as I turn in, I can tell you what we can control. The law of our family's land. The law of this land inside our four walls. We will love everyone who crosses our path. Those who are most in need are those who are most in need of us. Fear is fired. It doesn't get the call to shots for us. Anger is okay, but not when it harms, only when it redeems. Arrogance is natural, but we will call upon something supernatural to put it down. Grace is a way of seeing. It is love seeing the beauty at the center of everything. We will see to the center. All those things your kindergarten teacher told you to do, be kind, share, include, create, do them. Be laughed at for doing them all the way into adulthood. Keep doing them. Remember, each one of you play an indispensable role in this family of ours. Remember, everyone plays an indispensable role in this great big family of ours. Little ones, like those lights on the trees of the street and like those lights in the people in the coffee shop, there's a light inside each of you. Here's the most important law of our little land. Let it shine. Yours, Daddy. And we let our light shine when we gather and we say Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the light of the world, as he said. And he comes to set the captives free. I want to invite the, uh, the worship band back up. And two things before we, before we worship together, before we do perform an act of, of political protest by saying Jesus is Lord. Um, there are connection cards in the back. And like we said in the beginning, I don't ever want to assume where anyone is on the spiritual journey. So um, there are two little, little circles on the connection card. Um, one says, what is Christianity? And one says baptism. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian and you wanna know more about what the gospel is, what this faith is, who this Jesus is, just put your name and email and circle uh, what is Christianity. Or if you're interested on, in getting baptized or what Hope Brooklyn's theology of baptism is, circle the baptism one. We have a baptism class coming up very soon. Um, and so that would be, be an awesome, awesome time.